talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today. Ted Michaels uh, sitting in this afternoon. Had a little bit of rain overnight, which brought the temperature down a little bit. It's still humid, but not nearly as much as it did uh, the other day. By the way, we should mention right off the top, earlier this week, you heard us on CHML. We're talking about uh, how lactose pizza, uh, lactose-free pizza is now the thing to do. And there's a reason why for that. And we kind of threw it out to the folks at uh, Topper's Pizza. Uh, to, you know, see, half kiddingly, I said, you know what, I like to be a judge. Well, over and above, Stephanie from Toppers delivered uh, more than one ways than one. She came to the door, gave us the pizza, and we had a taste test. So very quickly, one of the people, the eager participants in the survey, uh, this is a non-scientific survey, by the way. It's not like a, a nanos poll or a global poll or whatever. You just kind of, we, we put the pizza out. William Weber joins us. Mr. Weber, your thoughts on the mozzarella-free pizza? Oh, that was tasty. You could have just A and B'd it, blindfolded me, and I yep. could not have told the difference. It's so, so good. I'm just telling you that uh, it's a thumbs up from the CHML newsroom and staff here. Uh, thanks to Toppers for that. I just thought I broke, because, you know, there are uh, other important things in life, but we thought we should mention that as well. Now, today, uh, the uh, online poll question of a more serious note, uh, in light of the controversy at Hockey Canada, should the entire leadership group of the organization be replaced? You can weigh in our Twitter poll, AM900CHML. Now, yesterday, we talked about this at length on the program. The Premier expected to give greater American-style powers to the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa. So the question becomes, should mayors be given a greater authority over how their cities operate? 56% said no. 44% said yes. So there you have it. Uh, something else we talked about yesterday that we should update you on today. You heard the news conference we ran yesterday with Jeremy O'Day from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders about the COVID outbreak on that team. And we kind of... Uh, Thought maybe today would have been the day to make the decision, yay or nay, about the game against the Argos. Well, they've made a decision. They have pushed back the game one day to Sunday. After players and staff members tested positive for COVID-19, they were supposed to meet a Saturday at Mosaic Field. The rivals, uh, riders were unable to practice Tuesday or Wednesday. were expected to do so today. So that game has been moved one day back. Of course, the Tiger Cats have a game tonight. We'll talk about that uh, throughout the program here this afternoon. Coming up on the program today... And we touched on this yesterday and kind of more uh, of an in-depth look at the Hamilton Fringe Festival and what one of the acts and one of the uh, shows is going to be at the Fringe Festival. We'll hear from that uh, individual coming up in a few minutes. Bank of Canada gave its employees $45 million in pay raises and bonuses during the pandemic, even though it failed to hit the inflation target. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation, as they always do, did their homework, they got their records, and Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, will weigh in on that. $45 million in pay raises and bonuses through the pandemic. I don't know if you realize this, today would have been the 71st birthday of Robin Williams. We look at his legacy, as well as how his story may have changed pop culture view of 
a mental illness. Speaking of legacies, if you uh, missed the news that, uh, well, throughout the day and you're just maybe getting in the car and just joining us right now, it was made official today that Ancaster will be electing a new representative to council this fall. War 12 Councillor Lloyd Ferguson announced he will not be running in the October election after nearly three decades of uh, public service. And now he will be joining us uh, on the air in a little bit, uh, probably just after 5.30 this afternoon, to talk about the legacy and the decision. But we thought we'd play one of the clips from the news conference that Lisa Pileski from CHML News attended today. He did acknowledge it's the end of an era. Why? For 67 years, our family has held an elected position without interruption uh, in, in Ancaster. And it's kind of sad for me that it's, it's ending this way, but... Uh, I regularly get told that our family is the Kennedys of Ancaster, and even the Kennedy era eventually came to an end. Well, that's interesting. It's a great point that they have been a fixture in Ancaster, as he's mentioned, politically for 67 years. So there's now five vacant council seats heading into the fall election, not including the mayor's chair, which is also up for grabs. We'll we'll ask Councillor Ferguson, you know, question that... uh, Many people have asked themselves or have been, you know, wondering, why would anybody want to run for council, be it in Hamilton or London? You're subjected to so much vitriolic hate comments on social media from people who can hide behind their clip, uh, their keyboard and just send out stuff that uh, nobody questions them on or they change their name. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go to a grocery store on a Saturday and all you want to do is pick up your, you know, go and get the blueberries that are on sale for two ninety nine, or get milk if it's on sale for under 5 bucks? and you got people saying, well, why aren't my sewers fixed? Why, why, why is the tree in front of my house not? Why would you want to do that? I don't know. We'll talk to Councillor Ferguson because he had a very 29 years in council, and uh, both in the city of, of Ancaster and, of course, uh, regional council and the city of Hamilton as well, representing Ancaster. So we will hear from him about that decision, which, uh, again, is really, really, uh, well, it's something that I'm sure he thought about for a long time. Said he he kind of knew at uh, Christmas time that it was time to uh, also uh, make that decision. And also coming up in a little bit uh, in the program as well, we'll be talking about the LifeWorks Mental Health health index which has come up and apparently well not apparently but it is true canadians are really feeling the heat canadians are equally as stressed inside the workplace as they are at home and we'll find out the reasons why coming up they got underway last night the 2022 hamilton fringe festival is underway at venues like Bridgeworks, the Zoetic, Theatre Aquarius, the newly reopened Staircase Theatre. There is a special show coming up this year called Disco Cab, the Disability Connection Cabaret. It's a, a cabaret night featuring artists who identify as disabled, neurodiverse, deaf, mad in their own medium. So basically they have a chance to basically educate people and have a great time doing it. And joining us to talk about this is a veteran. Okay, she, she's been doing it for a while. I don't like you to term veteran because it sounds like you've been never doing it for th- 20, 30 years. But uh, <laughs> uh, Carlin Ramey joins us for the next few minutes, mental health advocate and unofficial queen of Hamilton Fringe. Uh, Carolyn, first of all, thank you for joining us. As I say, I didn't mean to say veteran as in you've been doing it for 30 years, so you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, of course. No, I'm in my early 30s, so don't <laughs> age me too much. 
So let's talk about this interesting. Uh, you you hosted the event last night uh, till yeah. t- till of course the weather kicked in and then you had to go inside. Mm-hmm. But talk about this uh, new show this year. This disco cap sounds fascinating. Yeah, is kind of funny because you know I've been doing the ADHD project for a while and and people uh, know me as a as a storyteller and and my work in the neurodiverse community and I connected with Kit Simmons and they are a autistic ADHDer um, and uh, and they also have been doing a lot of uh, theater in the community and we had talked about wanting a space to create a space for uh, a disabled artists and neurodiverse artists to come together and, uh, and share their work. And we thought, Oh, a cabaret would be great. But of course we both have ADHD. So then we totally forgot about it for a year <laughs> and then uh, came together this past year, actually at the garden project. And we're talking about it again. And, and so we applied to fringe all access, uh, which has been just a great place for us to kind of uh, do this for the first time. You actually just touched on something that I find fascinating is that you can kind of in a way almost poke fun at yourself because you've been talking about growing up with ADHD and you just kind of said right now that you had it and then you forgot about it. Um, Two things. A, how difficult was it for you to to finally admit publicly that you have ADHD? And B, do you think we've made progress in people realizing uh, exactly what ADHD is? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I was one of the lucky ones. I was diagnosed as a child, actually. So, uh, you know, as much as I tried to hide it, it was a, a pretty well-known fact for me. But I, I would say, actually, it, it took into my 20s until I felt comfortable, you know, talking about it uh, with strangers, especially. And, and then it was through that process and through um, I had the opportunity to work and help out in a uh, classroom for, for other kids with, with ADHD and, and mental health. And so it was through that and meeting other kids with ADHD that I wanted to write this show about it to to kind of combat that the stigma and um, and the the ideas that people have around it uh, because it's so much more than um, you know just a hyper. 12-year-old boy. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because when you talk about like ADHD and things like that, how many creative people suffer from some like anxiety? It really kind of, you know, uh, it, it's there. It helps in their creative process, I would suggest, maybe digging deep and almost becoming c- cathartic. But what is it about uh, creative people, uh, if you will, showbiz people, entertainers, that a lot of them suffer from things that maybe people don't know that they have? I mean, for I, there, there's always that joke that you know to create true comedy you have to suffer a little bit, <laughs> but you do you gotta have to like learn to laugh at yourself. And I think a lot of people who, uh, you know, who grew up not being able to fit in a box for whatever reason, you know, it, it, they've either adapted and and you know it, that was to make other people laugh and and to carve out a space for themselves. Um, and I I also just think now that you know we're talking about it more and more is why now sometimes people you know come up to me all the time and they're like oh you know I really related to your show or you know I've been thinking a lot you, you talk about ADHD a lot online and and uh, I, I'm really relating to that and that's it's so great because suddenly now 
uh, with more awareness, a, a lot of people are able to get support and, and get treatment and, and, you know, get the help that they need to make life just a little bit easier. You know, it's interesting because when you mention, uh, you know, life, uh, life experiences, like it's the old thing about people that play the blues, you know, they all play the My Dog Died and all that. But, but it seems in music, in rhythm and blues, which when you get right down to it is talking about life and how many people are actually writing, for example, the blues based on what happened to them during their lives. So it kind of all ties in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it for sure does. I think, um, you know, it, it when you share a piece of yourself in your art, you know, I always say, especially storytelling or, or especially storytelling through music as well, you know, two things happen. Either uh, your audience relates to it or they learn something from a different lived experience. So either way, you're making a connection um, with, with the public. And I just think that there's nothing more more stronger than that. Our guest is Carlin Ramey, who is uh, part of the uh, Fringe Festival and uh, unofficial queen of, of Hamilton Fringe, and uh, she's ho- hosting a show this year, Disco Pop, uh, the Disability Connection Cabaret. Uh, how difficult was it, Carlin, to get people to kind of, uh, who, if, if they have something, as you mentioned, like ADHD, or they have some sort of uh, uh, a mental health uh, thing that they're fighting, how difficult was them for people to uh, actually come up to you and say, yeah, you know what, I think I'd like to be, uh, be a part of this show? I think there's a blend. I think, um, you know, the arts community, uh, is can can be very inclusive and, it, and it's and it's taking uh, a lot of steps towards a more inclusive environment and a more accessible environment. So a lot we do have, you know, especially in Hamilton too, which is why we wanted to do this to bring artists together. We have a vibrant uh, disability arts community. Um, it's been really wonderful. Uh, we have programmed, even though both Kit and I know a bunch of artists in the city. Most of the people we've programmed are artists we've never met, and there are, there are tons of, of amazing. Um, artists from from across the spectrum of of chronic illness um mental health uh neurodiverse and it's it's really wonderful because it's it's artists from across different artistic disciplines we're having musicians and and spoken word and poetry storytelling stand up um it's dance there there's a, a little something for everyone and i will say too the work isn't um we we have no rules for this we're, we're letting artists bring whatever they want to come up so n- not every artist is going to come up and and you know try and educate the audience in fact i think we'll have very little of that um it, it's just these artists uh, bringing themselves and their work on stage. The, the only uh, guideline we have is that we are we want artists from our community to come up because we want to connect with them and we want to create a platform to show Hamilton uh, these artists are here and, and how wonderful they are. A fascinating look at what is going to be an interesting part of the Fringe Festival. Carolyn Ramey from the Fringe Festival talking about the Disco Cab uh, new show this year. Best of luck with that. It's, it's a really interesting way for people to take part and people probably, as you mentioned, to get educated as well. Best of luck. Hope the weather holds up at least for the next little while. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> All right, we'll see what happens. Thanks very much, Carla. Much appreciated. Thank you. So there you have it, uh, the uh, explanation on what is a part of the Hamilton Fringe Festival. By the way, if you're wondering about this and you want to get more information, the Fringe uh, website is hftco.ca. That's hftco.ca. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada gave its employees... 45 
million dollars in pay raises and bonuses during the pandemic, even though it failed to hit its inflation target. That's records obtained by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And joining us to talk about this is the federal director of the CTF, Franco Terrazano. Franco, first of all, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Hey, thank you for saying my name absolutely spot on. Hey, listen, I am married to an Italian. If I didn't get that one right, then I would be in uh, absolute uh, trouble. Uh, and let me practice some other Italian on you here, Franco, and I'm going to keep it clean, obviously. When I see <laughs> this story, disgraziata is what I have to say. So let's talk about this. $45 million in pay raises. The question becomes, uh, why? Yeah, you know, I can't believe that we have to say this, but... Uh, pay raises and bonuses are supposed to be going out when you do a good job. The Bank of Canada isn't doing a good job. They have one overarching objective. That's to keep inflation low and around 2%. Well, if you've been at a, a gas pump or if you've been to a grocery store sometime in the last year, you know that the Bank of Canada has, well, failed at that job. Now, look, at best, at best, the Bank of Canada has failed to keep a lid on rising prices. At worst, the Bank of Canada is driving inflation by printing $300 billion uh, out of thin air. So I think we should all be kind of scratching our heads here wondering why the Bank of Canada is giving out pay raises, giving out bonuses, when it's failing at its only job, which is to keep inflation low. I'm, I'm wondering, when you uh, get a story like this and uh, records obtained, do you have to go through like court uh, proceedings and what have you, or is this just kind of like a freedom of information and, and, and you can do this like any other citizen can, and is the information easily obtained? You know, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's very difficult to get the information. I will tell you, though, this was right just through a freedom of information request. So we got the, we got the documents in a pretty timely manner, and it, was, uh, it wasn't like pulling teeth or anything like that. So, uh, you know... <laughs> It's interesting because uh, this year, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin admitted uh, that we got some things wrong, and the Deputy Governor acknowledged we haven't managed to keep inflation at our target. On, on uh, another note, which has nothing to do with this story, today Rogers fired the guy who was basically in charge of all the problems that they had about a week and a half ago. Uh, a private uh, company does that. This uh, Bank of Canada doesn't. I, I'm, I'm trying to see the, uh, figure out the disconnect here. Yeah, let me go even a step further, because the deputy governor also said not only did he admit that, like, well, surprise, surprise, they didn't hit their inflation target, but he also admitted that the Bank of Canada should be held accountable. Well, don't you wish that you were held accountable with pay raises and bonuses? You know what I mean? I mean, like, this is just so disconnected from the reality facing everyone else who may work in the private sector. Look, if, if you continue to fumble the ball at your job, uh, you get reprimanded. Uh, you get talking to. You might even lose your job, but you're certainly not given pay raises. You're certainly not given bonuses. And, and I mean, if, if you're just going to give bonuses to everyone, or, or maybe not everyone, but the vast majority of your employees, uh, no matter what, then are they really bonuses anymore, or is this just a slush fund? You know, I continue to kind of scratch my head here and wonder how the Bank of Canada, whose number one task is to keep and preserve the value of Canadians' money, i.e. keep inflation low, how could they possibly justify handing out pay raises and bonuses during a pandemic and when they continue to fail and meet their only inflation targets? 
Franco, you know, it, it seems um, kind of by extension when uh, people work up in Ottawa, um, and I know that we've had stories in the past about uh, MPs getting pay raises, and uh, in Ontario, MPPs getting uh, raises when uh, they really shouldn't get them. They've been telling everybody, hold the line, you know, when COVID comes, don't go anywhere. It almost seems that when you live and work in the ivory tower, you can almost do what you want. Yeah, I mean... That's the thing. Like, who is holding these people accountable? It's supposed to be our politicians. It's supposed to be our members of parliament here. Um, but how are they supposed to hold these bureaucrats accountable when they're busy giving themselves three pay raises during the pandemic? Uh, yeah, and you heard that right. I mean, while you and your struggle through COVID-19, your member of parliament, your representative, uh, took three pay raises during the pandemic, ranging from an extra $10,600 for a backbench member of parliament all the way up to an extra $21,000 for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but but I really feel uh, for so many people who may have taken a pay cut in the private sector, who may have lost their job, who may have even lost their business, who now face a higher tax burden because you have a whole bunch of politicians and bureaucrats that continue to give themselves pay raise after pay raise during the pandemic. And then they wonder, politicians wonder why people don't want to get involved in politics or they don't want to vote in an election. Maybe because people, maybe, Franco, maybe it's at the point now where people are finally starting to say enough is enough and and we're not basically going to do what you want us to do anymore. I'm not saying breaking the law here, but I'm just saying, like, sending a message like, I don't want to vote because nothing's going to change. Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and these elites are wondering, like, well, why do people, why are people losing faith in government institutions? Well, okay, let me, let me list a laundry list of explanations for you. Right? Bank of Canada, their number one objective is to make sure that inflation stays low. Well, inflation goes through the roof, 8.1% in June 2022, year over year. And what happens? Well, we find out they've been giving themselves pay raises and bonuses. Let's look at another crown corporation, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Their number one objective is housing affordability. Well, we saw house prices go through the roof in 2020 and 2021. And what happened? It turns out they were giving themselves pay raises and bonuses during those years. And then look at the Dairy Commission. I mean, the Dairy Commission has been raising the price of milk year after year. And now we find out that they, too, have been giving themselves pay raises and bonuses, which is just extremely tone deaf to make taxpayers pay more money uh, through the government, right, for their pay raises, and at the same time raise the price that taxpayers are paying at the till. So there's no wonder why so many Canadians feel like they're losing trust in these government institutions. Last question for you then. What happens now? You've uh, released your statement. Uh, we've talked about this. What happens with the Bank of Canada? Will, will they now, you know, re- respond to this? Will their PR flax kind of go into <laughs> damage control? Or are they just going to shrug their shoulders and say, too bad? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, right? But uh, until we actually have politicians who are willing to stand up for taxpayers and put the pressure on these, uh, these folks, I'm sure they'll just shrug their shoulders. But here's the thing. We're going to keep up the pressure. We need all Canadians to help us keep up the pressure. So if you're listening right now, uh, pick up the phone, give your MP an email, and be like, how in the world does the Bank of Canada employees deserve pay raises and bonuses while they're completely fumbling the job of keeping inflation low? All right. We'll see what happens. I love it. Try to keep their feet to the fire. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Thanks for the update. Uh, I hope we've made people's blood boil a little bit more with what we've (laughs) talked about today, just because people need to know what's going on. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
Thanks for having me on. All right, so there you have it. Congratulations. You and I gave $45 million in pay raises and bonuses to the Bank of Canada, even though they failed at their job. Hmm. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Today would have been the 71st birthday of Robin Williams, who um, many of us uh, were introduced to him way back when on the television show uh, Mork and Mindy, and we saw just how, how much of a talent he was and how different that part was of uh, playing Mork uh, from Ork and uh, found we found out of course uh, that uh, he passed away uh, he died from suicide he was battling depression and a lot of people uh, really obviously didn't know about that and were totally totally devastated and uh, would have been a 71st birthday today joining us to talk about uh, this for a few minutes is a television critic and a guy who knows a lot bill brio joins us on uh, hamilton today bill thanks very much for joining us so let's uh, let's talk about uh, robin williams and we mentioned off the top how many of us got to know him through the television show uh, mork and mindy uh, when we found when we saw him initially we thought to myself this guy is a comedic genius what a talent he was Yeah, extraordinary, and uh, one of whom we've not seen the like since, I don't think. Not only just as a great comic talent, but as a wonderful actor, I think a two-time Oscar winner. You know, he he was just a man of many talents, and uh, so it's wonderful to remember him today. Now let's uh, talk about what happened, uh, of course, when he passed away. As we mentioned, uh, he'd been battling severe depression of late, and uh, how sad it is uh, because obviously most of us didn't know that. And Robin Williams, uh, a couple of years prior to that, said basically that uh, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Uh, Those words were rather ironic. Huh? Yeah, it is. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I think it's wonderful that uh, Robin Williams has brought attention to uh, mental illness and, and, and everything. But I, I really, uh, I think in subsequent years, we'll probably go back to just remembering him for his great gifts and, and for the comedy he brought. Um, I did get to meet him a few times, interviewed him down in Los Angeles with other TV critics. Toward the end of his life, he did a couple of TV specials and then a series, The Crazy Ones. Yep. And I met him on the set of that show. He already seemed more subdued, but still very funny. And boy, I don't, I've don't. i never met a reporter, a movie critic, who ever met him who did not have just the most glowing things to say about Robin Williams. Well, it's interesting, Bill, because a lot of times when people talk to uh, well-known comedians, it seems when they're not, if you will, on, that they are a different person. They're a lot quieter. Uh, maybe they feel realize they or think that they you know, don't have to be on and be funny all the time. I'm interested in what you said, that he seemed rather subdued at the time that you talked to him. Yeah, The Crazy Ones was late in his career, and it was a CBS sitcom uh, that just didn't come together. Um, the title even was off-putting, you know, and he um, just, yeah, didn't quite seem himself. And uh, I, I, from what I've read, uh, the uh, illness that he was suffering from was already part of him, and um, it, it was just a very difficult time. So, uh, but like I said, he would greet you like you were a friend, like even somebody who saw him twice, like me, he uh, just very friendly every time, and like I say, TV movie critics who talk to him thirty times will 
tell you that he was the favorite interview that they ever had. Our guest is Bill Brio talking about uh, what uh, would have been the 71st birthday of Robin Williams. You know, you think back, we talked about Mork and Mindy, and you talk about the crazy ones. Let's not forget the other classic movie that I think a lot of people got really to appreciate him, and that was the part that he played in the movie. And, uh, boy, he fit the bill, didn't he? Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that was based on a real person. And, uh, you know, it was early in the Vietnam War. He was a radio disc jockey in the Army. Great film. Yep. And uh, it was early in his acting career. You know, he'd done one or two parts before that. Uh, but uh, really, that was the film that put him on the map acting-wise. And then there was a- another one, of course, uh, that I laugh at, because every time I see him dressed up, he just howl. And that was the classic part that he played in the movie, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes, he's fantastic in that. <laughs> he just became a whole other person. Uh, you know, Sally Fields is in that film. Uh, you know, it still holds up. And... Uh, you know, his performances generally do. I think if you went, sat and watched uh, Mark and Minnie now, you'd wonder why that was so popular. Uh, because I think it was all Robin Williams. It was just this, you got to see this guy. He's like no one else. Mm-hmm. But really a terrible sitcom. <laughs> Not a very good show. And it doesn't hold up at all. Uh, because we got to know Williams much better from all these other performances. Bill, before we wrap up, let's talk about uh, how Robin Williams' story, has it changed, in your opinion, pop culture's view of uh, the way mental illness is, is looked at by the entertainment industry? Yeah, I think all the, the exposure we have to people who have suffered and some conquered and some whose lives were lost, um, it, it's an eye-opener. We're seeing some great documentaries now on George Carlin, um, you know, there's one on Gary Shandling a few years ago, both of those by Judd Apatow. Uh, would that Judd makes one about Robin Williams? I think that would be an amazing story. But, you know, you see the struggles uh, that a lot of comedians go through. And uh, Williams, sadly, was uh, also affected by his own. Sad story. A genius. And sometimes uh, two kind of, uh, unfortunately, Meet would have been Robin Williams' 71st birthday today. Bill Brio, thank you very much for this. Enjoy the rest of the day and have yourself a great weekend. You too. Well, I would suggest uh, that uh, I'm not making light of this, but given what happened with Rogers and the massive, massive outage that we had with the service a couple weeks ago, people were probably saying more than just my sweet Lord, but we can't really mention what people were saying. Joining us to talk about some news that came down from Rogers Communications today is the professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and it has been a while since we've had a chance to say, Marvin Ryder, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So let's uh, talk about, first of all, this news today, that uh, in a statement today, Rogers confirmed Jorge Fernandez stepping down effective immediately from his role as Chief Technology and Information Officer. Marvin, are you surprised by that news? No, but let me, let me give a little context for you. Uh, as bad as the Rogers outage was now, it was in April of 2021, just a little over 15 months ago, that Rogers had another outage back on a Monday, and Mr. Fernandez was the chief technology officer then. Uh, he pointed to uh, some technology they had purchased from a company called Ericsson. They had been upgrading the software. The software upgrade didn't go well. Oops, sorry, that's what caused our outage at the time. And if I was Mr. Fernandez's boss, my temptation would be to give him a pass and say, okay, these things happen. You know, it's difficult to be a chief information officer. You 
hold your breath anytime you do a hardware or software upgrade, hoping it all goes well. And yes, reality is every now and then it doesn't. But now, 15 months later, he's in charge when this happens a second time. And this is the kind of thing where you only get one swing at the bat. If you strike out a second time, you just know you've got to take your glove and leave the game. And that's what's happened here. The new person that they have hired is actually a chief technology officer from Shaw, which mm. is the company, of course, that Rogers wants to acquire. So to have someone who is working for Rogers but familiar with Shaw's technology bodes well, assuming that merger goes forward. But I'm not surprised that Mr. Fernandez had to fall on his sword and go away. However, uh, Marvin, there is now the whole thing, legalities, of course, about uh, uh, terminated without cause. I understand uh, he would have been entitled to nearly $5 million in benefits if he was terminated without cause by the end of uh, December 31st, 2021. Of course, that now becomes uh, termination with cause. Without cause, I would suspect that uh, this could get nasty if uh, perhaps they are pointing the finger at him saying, this is the reason why we've let you go. Yeah, uh, well, you're a good point. I, I believe he's being let go with cause, but if he is going without cause, meaning that there is no blame attached to him, I'm sure a package has been worked out, and you and I may never hear the details about it. Ted, um, we've known each other for many years, but you might not know that from 1997 to 2002, I was the chief information officer here at McMaster University. Uh, for instance, remember that old Y2K stuff? Yep. Well, I, I was the guy in charge during Y2K and had to make sure that we didn't have any problems. And I can tell you, knock wood, that in my five years in the job, we didn't have any problems. I always held my breath when we did a major technology upgrade, whether it's hardware or software. But I can also tell you that even when we did those, every now and again, the, the law of unintended consequences, once we handed something over to our user base, primarily the 28,000 students at McMaster, they might use the technology quite differently than we had planned, and that left us scrambling to fill some voids. Never to the point that there was a failure, but they didn't all go quite as smoothly as I would have liked either. Marvin, I'm, now I, I go back to that whole Y2K thing. I know that uh, people, it's New Year's Eve, everybody wants to celebrate a new year. There was a lot of curiosity, Marvin, December 31st, 1999, when Y2K hit. Uh, think back to that particular night. Were you holding your breath more than you normally would? Well, yes. Now, let me explain. McMaster was quite confident that we had sorted out all the Y2K problems and that our technology was just fine. But of course, you're part of a network. You're connected to other people. And what do we do if other people have problems and then you get this cascade failure? So this is what we did, Ted. We actually shut everything down at, on campus at about five seconds to midnight and held our breath. Let's see what happens with the rest of the world. Is there a cascade failure? And then at five seconds after midnight, when nothing seemed to be happening, we brought everything back online. And, and again, Ted, I'm not trying to break an arm patting a back, but one of the biggest concerns that I had was McMaster's home, one of two universities in Canada, to have a nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. So you don't want anything going wrong with a nuclear reactor. And nothing did. We uh, had people come in on the holiday evening. We paid them extra time for this. Uh, I provided quite a banquet of food mm. to keep them all well fed, and we didn't have a problem. But 
you know, you always hold your breath when there's a technology upgrade. Marvin, you talked about the upcoming, uh, possibly the upcoming merger between Shaw and Rogers. There are those uh, that are saying that, you know what, maybe this is a case of Rogers being too big and the whole thing about a monopoly and uh, they have to spread things out. Uh, the CRTC is uh, having a finger pointed at it as well because of the uh, the um, situation with Rogers. Um, I know that you can't predict what the CRTC will do, but if they give the go-ahead of the green light to the Shaw-Rogers murder, uh, merger, could this create even more problems down the road as far as basically one major company almost doing everything? Well, Ted, in that situation, I have to break this into two parts. Uh, on Friday, tomorrow, the CRTC has demanded a report from Rogers about what happened, what went right, what went wrong. I am 99% certain Rogers is going to share the technology failure that happened. I believe they're going to point at some software that didn't get installed correctly, and then they basically brought down the network and then restarted it in pieces. That's why some people had a longer outage than others. I don't know if the CRTC will be happy with that. Uh, if they are and they say, okay, we understand you did a good job under the circumstances, then this probably won't affect the merger in any way. On the other hand, if they are unhappy with these explanations and say, wait a minute, you, you could have uh, foreseen some of this, you could have taken more steps uh, to do something about this, uh, it could hurt the merger. Now, Rogers has announced that uh, apparently, apparently, both their wireless network, meaning their smartphone network, and their internet network were running through the same networks. They had the same equipment. And what they're going to do is now break them into two separate things so that if one goes down, it doesn't automatically cause a failure in the other. In other words, if the internet goes down, the phones might stay up or the phones go down, the internet might stay up. And I think that's a welcome uh, move on the company's part. But how will the CRT, I don't know. And, and I'll also say this to people who were upset by this. I don't think we can ever rely on any of this 100%. Take electricity. My gosh, what is our life without electricity? And yet the grid goes down. Mother Nature, what have you, throws forces at it. And so we all have to develop our own risk management strategies for what happens. Hospitals, for instance, can't shut down because the electricity has gone away. So they have built their own backup generators to provide electricity during those difficult times. The same thing goes with internet. I will not be surprised if mission critical things like a 911 service is going to say, our problems, we put all our eggs into one basket. We actually need to have a contract with two different suppliers so that if something goes wrong with one, we can seamlessly switch to the other. Bell didn't go down. Uh, Telus didn't go down. So th this is going to be a question, not just for Rogers, but for everybody else. We may have thought these things were infallible when they're not. All right, so we'll see what happens as early as tomorrow. Marvin, as always, thank you for the update, sir. Hope to uh, touch base with you at some point in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you, Ted. All right, that's Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business talking about uh, what happened with Rogers, what happened with the news today, that the heads uh, are starting to roll at Rogers, and we'll see what the CRTC decides tomorrow. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today, LifeWorks released its monthly mental health index. It's a fascinating look at how you and I are, are feeling about our lives and about our work, and it reveals that Canadians are experiencing increasing strain. The mental health score declined to 64.1 points after four months of improvement. To uh, extrapolate these numbers, break it down for all of us, 
Wallace is the global leader and senior vice president of LifeWorks. Paula Allen joins us. Paula, first of all, it has been uh, quite a while since we've spoken. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, but glad to speak with you again. So let's uh, talk about uh, this uh the index today, even split between 26% of Canadians, indicating work stressors are their primary sources of stress, 26% of individuals citing personal stressors. I don't know about you, Paula, but the more people I talk to, it seems, despite the fact that COVID may be subsiding, there is still an awful lot of stress in our lives, and it's basically coming at us from all directions. Without question, and, and even this decline that we've seen recently, when you think about where the population is right now, like we've been through two years of unprecedented upheaval and change and lack of predictability. I mean, people have been through traumas, but not on this scale for this long ongoing is really quite extraordinary. And we are not even out of it yet. Uh, we are very sensitive to stress as a result of what we've been through. And add uh, on top of it that we're going through another upheaval with what's happening with the economy, inflation, changes in the job market, recession. And we can see why this, this trend towards an increase may have reversed. I'm wondering, Paula, how much stress are people feeling uh, combining uh, working from home? working Because not a lot of people, not not. There are some people that have gone back, but a lot of people still haven't gone back to their regular workplace. They're still working remotely from home. Some people think it's it's you know it's great to be able to work at home and do what you want to almost any time, but that's not the case. How much more stress in your um, research is uh, being caused by people that haven't been able to leave home to go back to the workplace? Well, there's different ways to look at this stress. Like certainly when we were forced to stay at home, when we had no choice, when we had uh, the isolation in all areas of our lives, there was absolutely no way that this was positive. Uh, people adapted, though. You know, there was flexibility. We have uh, different outlets right now. But, you know, we really have to look at what the human mind needs. And we need stimulation. We need variety. We need a change of scenery. We need movement. Uh, we need other people. And what we found is that over the, the, the while where so many were working from home and not really being connected, our relationships damaged. And it wasn't necessarily because of, you know, necessarily bad things happening, but we just became very efficient. We did our jobs and the positive things that helped build resilience and, and in terms of work relationships were, were gone. So it, it, it hasn't really balanced out in, in, in as positive a way as I think many people would like. Paula, when you talk about uh, the employers, uh, talk about the managers uh, and what uh, research uh, showed as far as supporting employees' mental health. Uh, are more employers being asked to uh, give even more support than what they were offered before? Yeah, absolutely. And without question, I think what happened is that there's always been a bit of a conceptual awareness that supporting employee mental health was the right thing to do. And many organizations did that extraordinarily well, even before the pandemic. Uh, but when we when we really hit this upheaval, it just became so obvious to business leaders that number one, this whole situation could really impact people's mental health. And number two, 
you know, if it does, I'm in trouble as a business leader. Like I need my people to be innovative and have good customer service and be focused and, and healthy. And so, so for all the good personal reasons, but also business reasons, it was important. And it's unquestionable um, the fact that when organizations have invested in the well-being of their people, their people do better. We've seen this a couple of times now in our scores. So when organizations provide resources, support, and flexibility, the mental health scores of their people are better than those who don't. Paula, I would suggest, uh, and this is not the case because some people um, like to work from home and they have indicated that they will never, uh, you know, if given a choice that they'll stay there forever. But seems to me that more and more people that I talk to, when they go back to the workplace, even on, a, you know, every so often, just the fact that they can see somebody and talk to somebody and share some humor and, you know, I'm not saying the, the whole water cooler conversation, but just to see somebody maybe give each other a hug, it's such a small thing, but I think we found out it means so much. People need other people. There's no two ways about it. And having that sense of connection, belonging, social support, shared experiences, you know, the, the goofy things that people do that will make you smile, like all of those things are helpful to us managing stress. So I do know that there's many positives with working from home, but, I, but this was thrust upon us in a kind of an unnatural way. And many people are working from home and their and their worlds are still very small. You know, they haven't found a way to balance out the needs that I just mentioned. And if that is the case, it's not helpful. So, I mean, if you can do that other ways, that's fine. Uh, but many of us need the, the structure of being with other people in a workplace, at least some of the time. One thing, uh, one more thing, Paula, before we wrap up, you look at some of these numbers. Um, uh, 28% of the people survey talked about an inability to relax. And for somebody like myself, who, who as I've mentioned, uh, you know, publicly uh, with anxiety, uh, not being able to relax is not a good thing. And I would suggest that's one of the hidden things of COVID that perhaps people aren't talking about. It's true, and, and it's one of the one of the the, the the symptoms that you know you might need to do something a little bit different. So many people think that you know when you're under stress, when you're under under strain, you know you want to stay in your in your bed and, and wrap in a blanket. But that's not the way it is for a lot of people. For some, it is. Uh, for others, it's the, the the need to 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 keep going, like the the inability to kind of turn off. So again, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's wonderful to tell somebody stop and meditate or whatever, but it's not all that easy. Um, I found it really easy when you actually structure things in your life that actually change your pattern. So you're not just doing what you normally do, but you have a little bit more variety, a little bit more balanced diet in your experiences, and it might be a little bit easier then to switch gears, including it, shutting off. It comes out every month. It's LifeWorks and the Monthly Mental Health Index. And uh, thanks to our guests for breaking down the numbers again. Paula Allen, Global Leader and Senior Vice President, thanks very much for the time. Uh, we appreciate it. Stay healthy. Hope to talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. All right. There's, uh, as we mentioned, Paula Allen and a breakdown at some of the numbers and what's going on with the way people are feeling these days because of uh, COVID and, and working from home. And the more people I talk to, it's like everybody is suffering. Everybody's got something. Everybody, you know, one way or another has been affected by this. And hopefully we'll get a chance to kind of return to some sort of normalcy in 
a matter of, uh, well, hopefully sooner than later. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talked about this uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. I can't even remember when it was, but it was basically before a very special walk. It was actually last Friday we talked about it because the walk was last weekend, and it was a 24-hour walk raising uh, awareness about the emotional toll and trauma caused by fatal overdoses. We gave him a little bit of time to relax afterwards, and here's the guy that uh, did the walk, Matthew Revita, uh, front and center, joins us. Matthew, first of all, good afternoon, and uh, I'm not being flippant. How are you? Hey, Ted, uh, thanks so much for having me. Good to be back. And surprisingly, uh, my body is in tip-top shape. I kind of prepared myself for the walk as best as I could in terms of just, I had a massage gun with me that I was uh, using a lot of chemicals up throughout the beginning of it, so I was pretty good. Uh, my body's feeling pretty good. So uh 24-hour walk, as we talked about, uh, raising awareness uh, through uh, Dundas Driving Park and around Dundas Driving Park. Um, I, I don't know, um, I- any idea how many kilometers you put on your shoes uh, for the 24-hour period? Yeah, so I actually documented everything on my Apple Watch, and it was actually pretty surreal. When I crossed the finish line, I stopped it, and it was 80.87 kilometers walked. I burned 7,883 calories. And I walked 116,272 steps over the 24 hours. So let's go back again. 80 kilometers, and you walked over uh, 70,000 steps. 116,000. 116,000, and you burned how many calories? 7,800. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, when you finished, I know there was obviously, uh, there. well, there was a sense of elation, obviously, but, but how tired were you physically or maybe mentally after training for this and then walking for 24 hours? I think physically, it's, it's weird. It's, it, it got in spurts. I feel at the end, I almost felt like I wanted to keep walking. It was like I just walked 24 hours, yep. and I pushed myself to huge mental I mean, over so many mental barriers, I'm just like, why not keep going? But I think once I sat down and just taped, took off my feet and untaped my feet, it just really sunk in how physically draining it was. And I'm just thankful that it was really the people who came out that really just sparked different, I, I want to say, fifth, sixth, seventh years through 24 hours. Now, I know that... Um it, it it can get humid at times through uh, Dundas and through southern Ontario. Uh, how bad was it for you battling any type of uh, really nasty heat conditions? Yeah, so I started at 3, and the thought process was to really try and avoid the heat starting in the morning. I felt like I really wanted to kind of beat myself up on the second day. I felt that if I started super early on Sunday, I mean, on Saturday, I'd be in the straight heat for 8, 10, 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And I may have just died out overnight. I thought, let's start midday, you know, get through it, get, get over that mental hurdle at first, and then kind of at the home stretch where, you know, like you're counting down the hours, not necessarily counting up. And I think it worked out good because Sunday was a little bit of overcast. And um, they w- I was just trying to keep hydrated. Uh, my fiance is a registered nurse, so she was on my butt the whole time of just drinking Gatorade, grabbing a water bottle, grabbing something every time we kind of had like a tent set up. Uh, every time I kind of, you know, quote-unquote, went around go, 
Matt, grab something, grab this, grab that, make sure you're eating, grab some electrolytes. So I was, I was thankful to kind of have those people there to push me through to kind of keep drinking and eating. I know people joined you through the walk, but did anybody join you, say, oh, I don't know, 4 o'clock on the Sunday morning? I had, uh, it was amazing. I can't, again, I keep saying, I can't say, I had over 100 people wow. come out to walk over the two days. And it really just a testament to how many people this affects and how many people I have in my life that truly just support me and what I'm doing. Uh, thankfully, actually, people listened to this on Friday. I had a lovely lady come out uh, who heard and said she was coming out because her son passed away. And she actually really had no idea why she came. She wasn't sure the purpose. She just wanted to come and meet me and talk to me and see how, you know, just interact with other people, how it, could, how it can go for her. And I think it was great because we actually had a lot of moms come out who have lost a, a child and they have sort of like a mom's group. And I think she was able to get a part of that. And that's kind of what really set in for me. I had people driving out from Coburg. I had people driving out from Scarborough. I had people listening to your radio station. I had an Uber driver drive one of my friends down who heard me on Friday. Or you're going to that kid who's walking 24 hours at the Dundas Driving Park. So it really shows how many people are affected by this. Um, I know uh, the other part of this, of course, is uh, fundraising. Any idea how much money you, uh, well, first of all, I don't know what your goal was, but any idea how much money you raised or close yeah. to it? Yeah, I, I have everything uh, online set up. And my initial goal was to pay $1,000. It's more about the awareness. I'm really, I've just recently started forming my own not, Canadian registered not-for-profit. And it really was just to create the awareness by having this event. But quickly got to like over 2000 and the week before the event it was sitting at around 2700 and then just escalated i had so much support from my employer bank of montreal bmo so many friends and family that now during the walk and after the walk were were just over seven thousand dollars raised in about a month's time since i've uh, announced i was doing this walk so it's simply amazing now let's talk about uh you is a new not-for-profit called tony's tales uh are there any websites are there any twitter accounts about that particular not-for-profit group or is that still in the planning stages you know, I just have an Instagram account, and and, and then correct what you're saying. It really is just trying to build the foundation, uh, talking with a lot of people who are involved in this space and trying just to fill the gaps and where resources and where supports can now be placed uh, to help youth who are affected by substance use and the traumas that they endure moving forward. And again, it's really trying to just set this and lay the groundwork in this foundation at a grassroots level, especially in the Hamilton community, because we have one of the highest opioid uh, overdose, uh, you know, numbers compared to a lot of other cities in, in uh, Ontario and Canada wide. So it's really just setting that foundation for me moving forward. And just what I've been able to do in this month and the people I've been able to meet is just, you know, having me excited on to what I can take this and the people that can help me uh, take it there. Matthew Ravita, mental health advocate, walking for 24 hours to raise uh, money and uh, awareness about the emotional toll and trauma caused by fatal overdoses. Congratulations. Well done. I hope we get a chance to have a face-to-face meeting and kind of bounce some ideas back and forth uh, in the near future. Congratulations. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again, Ted. Love that. Have a great day. You too. I feel so not worthy. I mean, after hearing his story, walking for 24 hours, raising money, well done. Congratulations. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. An interesting uh, survey and research and an announcement has come out today that wrist-worn health devices can be combined with machine learning to detect COVID-19 infections as early as two days before the symptoms appear. Brilliant! Joining us to talk about that is the Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Research at McMaster University, David Conan joins us. David, thank you. Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. So let's outside, but otherwise great. <laughs> let's talk about this now. I understand that the research uh, was it basically started in a little country that people don't think about till they see the Olympics, and that's Liechtenstein. So how did the uh, research project start there? It goes to the Univer- uh, University of uh, Basel in Switzerland, and then ends up at McMaster University. Kind of tell us how the, how that trail uh, started. Yeah, that's a long story. I tried to be short. Uh, so I met a, I met a, a friend of mine in Boston at Harvard School of Public Health in 2008. And uh, we developed that idea of following healthy patients in the uh, population for a long time to see and to find out how exactly cardiovascular disease and other diseases in the population develop in young and healthy adults. And then... In uh, 2016, I came here because I was uh, asked to, to join McMaster University to do research here from Basel, where I was uh, after Boston. And um, when the COVID pandemic hit in 2019, we asked ourselves on how can we contribute to finding out more about the disease. And given that we had still this uh, people that we were following in Liechtenstein, we thought about finding ways on how to improve diagnosis of COVID-19. And as you can remember, one of the problems with COVID-19 and other infections is that once people start developing symptoms, it's already too late because they have already started spreading the disease. And if you isolate them at the time of symptom onset, they already have spread it to somebody else. So we thought that um, at the but didn't know before, it's called a fertility tracker, um, which measure, measures temperature, uh, heart rate, and some other parameters that is then uh, applied to women to measure their fertility cycle and find out when they are f- fertile. We thought that the same parameters could be used to measure changes before actually patient, people have um, overt symptoms. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Now, I'm curious, uh, when we're talking about this, it's a wrist-worn health device. It can be combined with machine learning. So basically, how does this work? Because you bring up a good point. Somebody tests, and it's positive, and they've already got the symptoms, or they test, it comes up negative, and then they get the symptoms uh, a little bit later on. So kind of tell us how this uh, new uh, research and how this new device would work. So what is important to understand is we applied this device to a large group of people, about 1,160 people wore the device for many weeks. And the device measures um, overnight. You don't wear it during the day because overnight it's more stable. You, you apply the device and every 10 seconds, the, me- the device measures a data point. And so you end up with millions of data points when you measure a large group of people every 10 seconds for several weeks. So 
in order to find a signal in this large amount of data, you need strong computers and powerful algorithms to then identify basically a signature that then tells you that this signature will lead to COVID and this other signature will not lead to COVID. So this um, isn't quite as, as simple as basically getting a, a device, putting it on your wrist, turning it on, and then finding out that, that you do or do not have COVID. It's a little more in-depth than that. It is at the beginning, but now that we have identified the signature, you could, you could program this into the app, which is already available. And then once the app uh, has that signature included, then it just alerts you once that signature pops up. Obviously, this is still early days. And I, I, I want to emphasize the point that it was a relatively small study and it's currently being, our algorithm is currently being tested in a very large study in the Netherlands uh, among 10,000 of people. But should, should that signature hold, and should it confirm that we can detect COVID two days before symptom onset, then that signature could, program, could be programmed in any device. And then you don't need that powerful uh, computer anymore, but you could just uh, apply it in any app on any mobile device. I'm wondering now if this isn't just related only to COVID. Uh, could it lead to more research and uh, kind of uh, leading to find out uh, some symptoms or what have you when it comes to other diseases? Of course. This can be hopefully applied to many other diseases, infections, uh, influenza or other infections. But also here in Hamilton, we're doing a lot of research in patients after surgery where we apply, um, where we give patients uh, devices at home where they can measure their blood pressure, their heart rates, their oxygen saturations in their blood on a regular basis in order to hopefully send them home earlier and safer and hopefully detect the complications earlier. It's the same principle. You try to identify signature that mean that either patients do well or they do not well and they need more attention from a doctor or from a nurse. Before yes, we this can be applied broadly. Before we wrap up, uh, as, as terrible as COVID was and all the problems that it caused uh, around the world, it's interesting, uh, though, that we find out that uh, in many ways the COVID uh, scare has led to some incredible medical research, including what we've just talked about. Because, uh, you know, let's go back a couple of years when COVID first started. How quickly did everybody work hard to develop some sort of a vaccine for COVID prevention, which we've talked about, of course, and then some Something like this, I would suggest, wouldn't have been uh, possible without COVID uh, happening. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely, absolutely. The vaccine is a major breakthrough in such a short time. Our study, on a, on a, on a smaller scale, we had developed the idea, written the protocol, get approval from ethics boards uh, within a few weeks, which usually takes about two years to develop. We, we um, put in a lot of efforts, the, the authorities put in a lot of efforts, and everything was going much faster. And I agree, there has been a lot of breakthroughs. Um, we're just talking on Zoom here, Zoom video conferences, um, virtual um, assessments, everything has really 
uh, jumped forward uh, dramatically. I fully agree with you. And uh, that is a fascinating look at uh, possibly how to find out if people uh, may be uh, having uh, some sort of problems with COVID or not. Dr. Uh, David Conan, Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Researcher at McMaster, a fascinating look at what is being done regarding COVID infections. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. You too. That is a, that's a fascinating look. Is they just put that thing on your wrist and, and it gets hooked up and all the algorithms come up and all the stuff that I don't understand, but I'm glad that he explained it because that's really, really neat research. Well, there was a news conference that was held today and uh, there was an announcement and a major political shift in the city of Hamilton um, and the... Uh, Nice little area known as Ancaster because after 29 years of being uh, uh, running for uh, various councils and various elections, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson has announced that he will not be running in War 12, which he has represented since 2006. And he joins us here on the CHML. Lloyd, first of all, thanks for taking the time. Has, uh, has your announcement kind of really finally sunk in yet? Well, first of all, uh, Ted, thanks for having me on to explain it. And uh, secondly, yes, it is sinking in. I thought about this long and hard for the last six months. What's the right thing to do? And, you know, I still love representing the people of Ancaster. I still love what I do. But I am 72 years of age. I've got 16 years experience as a as a city councillor and 10 years as an Ancaster councillor and three years as a school board trustee. But even more difficult is the fact that my mother, my father, my brother, and myself collectively have served the people in Ancaster in elected positions for 67 consecutive years, which is a long time. Uh, so we've never missed a beat. There hasn't been a hole between any elections. And, uh, you know, it really bothered me that I was going to come to an end. I tried to convince my daughter to have a go at it, but she didn't want to do it. And uh, and, and so here it is, the announcement's out, and... Uh, and, and so I think I've made the right decision. Now let's uh, talk about that because um, you say that you asked your daughter if she'd be interested and she said no. And I'm wondering, uh, Lloyd, with what goes on these days in council, not only in Hamilton, but it seems uh, in many places, a lot more vitriolic comments are put on social media and uh, people uh, not necessarily getting accosted, but certainly people's private lives aren't their own. And I'm wondering, Lloyd, why would anybody these days want to run for council. Well, I'm not going to deny the fact that weighed my decision. It's a tough time to be a political person now. And, and I think it applies to all three levels of government. But I can tell you the local government, the municipal government, is the closest to the people. And someone wants to come in and speak to us, they re- make a delegation, delegation re- request, and very, very rarely get turned, uh, they get turned down. But the special interest groups in particular that just, they, 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 they don't... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a gentle way to say this. They, they don't always tell the facts correctly. And, and it's a way to try to malign an, uh, an elected person. I went through that in January with the re-election of the chair of the Conservation Authority. And, the, you know, there's some special interest environmental guys wanted me to removed. And, I, and they argued that uh, their, their website, Save the Stream, this really struck me that uh, 96% of all the wetlands in Ancaster have been destroyed. And that's simply not true. And I kept, every time I got another letter from one of their, you know, their colleagues, uh, I would ask the same question. Tell me one. I don't know of any. But they, uh, they went out to the like-minded people on their contact list and got 129 letters in 
to have me removed as the chair of the Conservation Authority, and I don't know why. I mean, they talk about 140 Garner Road, but the Conservation Authority, at the end of the day, unanimously turned that down. Now, it's off to the Ontario Land Tribunal, and they'll be making the final decision, but they attacked me with wrong information, and I don't know how you correct that. But you're right, social media is also brutal. I mean, I, I tried to get a defamation lawyer to help me. Uh, one individual put out 46 barefaced lies on, on Twitter. And what he told me was, uh, I sent them through to him, and he says, I'll take the case. Uh, I need $10,000 up front, and that's my own money. It'll cost you $80,000 to finish it. And um, at the end of the day, you'll lose. And you'll lose because freedom of speech in the courts will always trump um, defamation. Wow. And and so it's terrible when you work as hard as we work. So, you know what? Most of us work very hard. We're in long meetings all day, just about every day. And then you get these lies spread, and you can't do anything about it. And and uh, I found that very, very difficult, particularly in the last few months. All right, so let's kind of talk about now some positives about, uh, as you say, uh, 16 years as a councillor, 10 years uh, with uh, Ancaster Council before that, and uh, three years uh, on, on the school board. Let's talk about some of the positives for what I call beautiful Ancaster, because one of the things I like to do, Lloyd, at Christmas time is drive past the Ancaster Town Hall and see those beautiful Christmas lights. I know that that's not really up there, but I got to tell you, Ancaster remains a jewel in this town, so Talk about some of the things that you're proud of that you've accomplished in your career. Well, I'll, I'll just go through the last 16 years when I was an Ancaster counselor. And you're right. Ancaster is a place where people aspire to move to. People work hard so they can get a home in Ancaster. We're seen as having great schools. I mean, we do spend uh, a lot of money in our heritage village uh, doing Christmas decorations and flowers in the summer to really make it a special place. And a lot of people think it is a special place, but Wilson Street was in horrible shape when I first went in. It was, uh, there was virtually no sidewalks, no curbs, no bicycle lanes, um, broken up pavement. But as of uh, September this this year, uh, if Wilson Street will be completely reconstructed between 403 and the city limits. Uh, right through the village core, right up through that busy Halson Fiddlers area, that's all been done. And it's got bicycle lanes and three lanes of traffic, one lane for turning, two to travel. Brand new sidewalks. Uh, we have a nice uh, provincial, we run a provincial award for the gateway that we constructed. The other thing is the Ancaster Square, and it was a, a tired place. There, uh, so we got the Hamill House, the old um, municipal buildings, which is a heritage designated building that was vacant, uh, contaminated and derelict. We got that, um, got a, a federal grant for that and completely rebuilt it. Now it's the home of the Ancaster Minor Sports Association and the BAA. The Tisdale House, the oldest house in Ancaster, uh, a local citizen, John Nelson, moved it up from Glendale Motors, right up beside the old town hall, but unfortunately he passed away just as he got a move, so it sat vacant until the 20, uh, 2010s, 2011s, and I was able, in my capacity as chair of the Police Services Board, to get that building refurbished through a federal grant again for heritage buildings, and is now the home of the, uh, my, or the um, uh, Police Museum and the Police Service Center. We got a new spray pad, we got the, the brand new uh, regulation size village green uh, bowling area, we got um, the uh, five new tennis courts. We got a bubble going up there in October, and new clubhouse for both. So those are some of the key highlights. Plus this fire station. Plus twinning the Morgan Firestone Arena. Plus refurbishing the 
the uh, Spring Valley Arena, plus the uh, expansion of the Senior Achievement Center in Ancaster. So those are some of the accomplishments. And I always remember my, my assistant telling me about 10, 12 years ago, if you don't have a project to work on, you're probably going to quit. <laughs> and, and, and because I love doing projects. All right. And I love being a doer and getting it done. And, but I'm pretty well finished now, but... Uh, what my vision was. All right, Lloyd, uh, listen, you are moving into the next phase of your life. I have done that. Maybe we can go and have dinner at uh, Cavallo Nero sometime soon and kind of uh, laugh and, and share some old stories. How's that? That sounds great. It was, I've seen you there a few times. That yes, you have. Out. Yeah, one of my favorite places to go. Lloyd, congratulations on your decision. Uh, best wishes going forward, and I know we'll be hearing from you just in a different capacity. Correct. All right. Thanks very much. There's Councillor Lloyd Ferguson announcing he will not seek re-election in War 12 in Ancaster in uh, the October election. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Where's the week gone? Where's the year gone? Do you realize next weekend is the civic holiday weekend and we're almost at the end of July? You think back to when we had those major snowstorms in January. You know, think way back. Time has just flown by, hasn't it? It's just, it just, I don't know where the time, it, it's already almost the end of July. Horrible that it's going by so quickly. Anyway, uh, some of the stories we didn't uh, get a chance to talk about or follow today. Earlier we talked about uh, that new test uh, for COVID that McMaster researchers are working on. Uh, where you basically put it on your wrist and then it gets plugged into a computer and you can find out maybe a couple of days before you take the test if you have COVID. Well, New York health officials are reporting a rare case of polio. Health officials said polio was detected in someone who lives in Rockland County, north of New York City, the first case of the virus in this state in nearly a decade. Officials did not say who the person is, what condition they're in, or whether they're vaccinated. Polio was eradicated in the United States in 1979, but occasionally travelers have brought infections into the country. The last one was 2013. Health officials said the infected person appeared to have a strain of the virus derived from a live vaccine, which is not administered in the U.S., but is given in other countries. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. Still in the health files, the UN's health agency is considering whether the growing outbreak of monkeypox should be declared a global crisis. The World Health Organization's Director General, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, saying there are now close to 14,000 confirmed cases of monkeypox reported to the WHO in the last year from more than 70 countries and territories. So far, five deaths have been reported, all in Africa. Most cases continue to be reported from Europe, primarily among men who have sexual relations with other men. In Esdalekwatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Well, we change tact here. Thousands, throngs of people are back in San Diego as Comic-Con International returns after a two-year hiatus because of, yes, the pandemic. As required at Comic-Con, nearly all wore masks, the protective kind, not the supervillain kind. Ariella Landeroff is okay with that. I would say a tiny bit of me that's nervous, as everyone is all the time, but I mean, they're really good about, you know, making sure everyone has their proper identification. People like Valerie Lawton feel they fit in at Comic-Con. You're in line and somebody's talking about Pokemon, and when you're in real life, you're the lonely person talking about Pokemon, so it's just nice to feel like everybody around you is just as invested as you are. People were dressed as Star Wars Stormtroopers, The Mandalorian, even Chucky from Child's Play emerged from one cosplayer's stomach. I'm Ed Donahue. Oh, that's nice. 
It's original, but that's nice. Uh, still in the Hollywood uh, files, in the entertainment files today, a famous Hollywood couple is examined by a famous Hollywood actor in a new documentary series. The lives of legendary Hollywood power couple Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward are the subject of a new docu-series from Ethan Hawke. Paul had begun working on a memoir. And Hawke tells us the last movie stars contained some surprises. I just would have never known that Paul Newman was as insecure as he was. You know, like it's, it's kind of a relief to realize that he was sweating through three shirts and a nervous wreck and worried he wasn't good enough. And you're like, wow, we're all like that? The Last Movie Stars features actors reading the words of Newman and Woodward with George Clooney and Laura Linney voicing the... Sorry, that's uh, Jason Nathanson from uh, ABC News cut off the end of the report there. Well, that pretty well wraps up today's program. Uh, we've uh, talked a lot about what's been going on with COVID and that test and what's been going on with uh, the Conference Board of Canada, with the um, Canadian Taxpayers Federation looking at the Bank of Canada giving their employees... Uh, Big raises during COVID. What happened with Rogers? They made a major move today that their basically guy who was in charge of technology got uh, asked to leave uh, the room and leave the building today. They fired him, so that change is coming to Rogers. We'll see what the CRTC decides tomorrow. And means tonight, go home. There's actually a doubleheader of football, which is a nice way for me to relax. We've got the Red Blacks and the Alouettes coming up at 7, and so we'll see what happens and uh, what type of performance the Tiger Cats put in tonight. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks to Will Erskine, show producer, William Weber, a technical producer, and we will see you tomorrow on 900CHML and 980CFPL London. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.